Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We're in a sermon series titled His Story, Our Story. Rather than a series of unconnected events, the Bible is one story, it's the story, and it's also our story. Thanks for joining us. Well, good morning, everybody. My name's Jeff, and I want to talk to you today about the story of Jesus' cross and the story of Jesus' empty tomb. These two stories, which are about Easter weekend, are in the center of this great story that we've just seen. And as I talk to you about it today, you may be saying, like, why do we need to talk about that? Well, one of the things I just want to name, I don't know if you can feel it in our nation right now, but there is a heaviness, there is a hopelessness, there is a loneliness, there is a darkness that seems to be winning. Can you feel it? Millions of people down through the centuries have found hope in this story. That's all I really want to do today. Normally we have message notes for you to follow along, but today I simply want to retell the story of the cross and the empty tomb. And I'm praying that somehow, as we just hear that together, that God, by his grace, will connect your story to his greater story. I don't know how he always does that, but he finds a way so many times when his story is told. So, let me just begin. Twelve hours before Jesus is ever nailed to the cross, he has already been suffering a lot. He says to his disciples, before they take the Last Supper together, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow. One of the reasons why is because he is about to do what no other human being in all of history has ever done. And that is to take the sin of the whole world of all time on his shoulders. And it's a heavy, heavy thing to carry in a difficult cup to drink. But three times in the garden as he wrestles, even though angels minister to him, He says, not my will, but your will be done. He is then betrayed by one of his closest disciples, one of his closest friends, I mean, a guy named Judas, who he's invested three years in and who he loves. And he's betrayed with a kiss and sold for 30 pieces of silver. Immediately he's arrested and he is chained and he is taken before the religious leaders and the government leaders to see if they can find any fault in him. Now he has made, he's forced to stand for all these 12 hours throughout the night and into the next morning. Have you ever tried standing for 12 hours when you've already been up all day? It's not easy, but these 12 hours, he would also then be falsely accused. He would be mocked, he would be struck, he would be spit upon, he would be disowned, he would be abandoned by all of his friends. And that's just in 12 hours. I would say that makes for a kind of bad day. Jesus was already suffering. So as we think about that though, once Pilate, the Roman governor, decided that there was no basis for a charge in him, In order to pacify the crowd, he actually releases a known murderer and insurrectionist named Barabbas to the crowd, and he has Jesus flogged. Now, I don't know if you know much about this Roman form of punishment, but it is sometimes called a halfway death. 
Some people didn't survive it. They used what was called a cat of nine tails. And I'd like, if I could this morning, just to read something by Dr. Robert Wassener, who is a physician, and he looks at the suffering of Christ. Let me just share some of his words and make comments as we go along. So after Pilate's announcement of finding no fault in him, Jesus' suffering begins in earnest. Guards take Jesus to the hall of the praetorium where he is flogged. Jesus is stripped and bound by the wrist to a column. The whips that are used have balls of lead or bone chips tied into the leather thongs at the ends of the whip. Two executioners working alternately lash in cadence at his back, shoulders, thighs, and calves. The balls of lead begin to bruise and break the skin, and blood begins to run. Shreds of skin hang loose. Jesus' body shudders at each stroke. His silence only redoubles the executioner's rage. His strength begins to fail, and his legs give way. His bound wrists prevent his slipping to the bloody pavement. Remembering their orders, the executioners stop short of killing a purple legionnaire's cape, denoting royalty, is thrown over his shoulders, and the soldiers have a good time with him by placing a crown of thorns and pushing it down on his head. Nothing bleeds more than a scalp wound, causing more blood to run into his tangled hair. There are mock bows, more blows to his face and head, shouts of hail, king of the Jews, but Jesus answers nothing. Exasperated, his mockers spit in his face. They take off the cape and put Jesus' own clothes back on him. Back to Pilate they go. Flogging Jesus has not satisfied them. Later the crowd cries, crucify him, and Pilate condemns Jesus to die. And what happens next is that Jesus is led outside the city. It's not necessarily a kind of walk that we would picture long. It was 650 yards riding through the city, pushing through. But notice what happens next. Jesus' robe, already sticking to his wounds, is torn from Jesus' back. The blood starts to flow again. Then the crossbeam is placed on his shoulders. According to Roman custom, only the cross piece, weighing at least 75 pounds, is carried by the victim. I often try and just picture, you know, railroad ties that are underneath the rails of a railroad? I often try and picture something rough and heavy like that being placed on Jesus' already tender back. The vertical piece of the cross is already planted at the execution site outside the city known as Calvary or Golgotha, which means place of the skull. Barefoot and bound and terribly exhausted, Jesus falls several times during the journey to his execution. The Roman soldiers become impatient. Each time the cross piece slips and scrapes his back, reopening the wounds. Finally, the Roman soldiers force a man named Simon to pre- and they press him into carrying Jesus' cross the rest of the way. They have a job to do. At Calvary, Jesus is stripped naked and his robe is roughly yanked off excruciating pain like millions of hot needles shock his nervous system. Wounds on his back legs and thighs are caked with dust and fine gravel as he is laid on his back at the foot of the cross. With his shoulders on the cross piece, the executioners prepare a hole for the nails. One arm is held in place, palm up. A long square nail is wrapped into the forward fold so familiar to the executioner. Then the other hand, a single blow of each hand of the hammer, and it is done. Jesus is still silent, but his face is terribly contracted. 
The median nerve has been touched but not severed. His thumb is striking the palm of his hand. Inexpressible pain darts like lightning through his fingers, shoulders, and into the brain. The most unbearable physical pain a human being can experience is caused by wounding the great nerve centers. Each movement of the body revives this horrible pain. The executioner and his assistant must now hang this cross piece on top of the seven foot upright. Pulling against the two nailed hands, they lift the cross piece and fix it in place. Jesus' knees are bent and the bottom of his right foot is placed underneath the left foot and a spike-sized nail is driven through both feet into the wood. The two-minute job is finished. An anesthetic, a mix of vinegar and wine, is offered, but Jesus refuses it. His arm muscles are grossly contracted and his fingers are cramped sharply inward. Huge ridges of muscle stand out on his thighs and calves. Tetanus and infection set in. The stomach and neck muscles tighten, and then the respiratory muscles also. Short breaths enter in a whistling sound, but don't come out. He thirsts for air like one suffering an acute asthmatic attack. His pale face turns purple and eventually blue. He is asphyxiating. His lungs, loaded with air, are unable to empty themselves. Fluid begins to accumulate in his lungs, making it even more difficult to breathe. He's actually drowning. Rising one or two inches on his feet helps relax the chest muscles, but the pain is severe each time he does so. He sinks back down, then rises up to breathe over and over for six hours. The wounds become infected and irritated, and swarms of flies whirl around his body. I've thought about this. I don't like flies. I don't know. A fly starts to bother me. You ever had a pesky fly? You just swat it away. The one who created the world now cannot do that because he's chosen to do what he did for us. I want to just invite you to do something sometime. Can you imagine? Just put your hands over your head for about five minutes and then start to notice what's bothering you. And just imagine that Jesus went through that probably for a half hour during his beating and then probably for another six hours on the cross. The lifting up, the straining of the muscles, the pain, just the challenge of that. It must have been so consuming. And once you strike the nerve centers of the body, physicians will tell you that this actually was one of the things that became the most humiliating about the cross. Not only did they strip him naked, take his clothes, and cast lots for them, which the only earthly possessions he had left, but then on top of that, can you imagine being out and open in a public place? Most of us are so concerned about our appearance that this would not be easy for us to be shamed like that. He had lost all dignity. It was taken from him. But when your nerve centers cripple you like that, you no longer can have control of your bodily functions. And there on the cross, he can't stop the urine. He can't stop the feces. He can't stop the blood. He can't stop the pain. And he continues to endure that. So when we think about that, I was thinking about the fact that it would be difficult to speak from the cross. And so we only, the Gospels only record seven phrases that Jesus spoke, and most of them are short. And that's because in order just to pull himself up to breathe would have been a Herculean effort, let alone to speak but the very first words that the executioners, hardened as they were, 
hear come from Jesus' lips shocked them because they usually are used to cursing and hatred and desperation. Instead, they hear in a peaceful way, Father, forgive them because they do not know what they are doing. They execute him, hang him on the cross, and then over the next few hours, some interesting things take place. As soon as he is hung up on the cross, the crowd resumes their mockery and hateful words. And also, on both sides of him are criminals, one on his left and one on his right. The Gospels tell us that the religious leaders joined in the mockery and the hate that the soldiers did, and even both criminals started out that way. Interesting. But in the midst of this chaos, Jesus finds the strength to care for his mother who is standing at the foot of the cross, grieving by what she sees. And he looks down and sees that one of his disciples is standing there, and he says, woman, here is your son. And he says to his disciple, here is your mother. And from that day on, he took her into his home and cared for her. A little bit later, an amazing conversation takes place. Luke's gospel records it. Look at these words. One of the criminals begins to yell at Jesus. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal must have had a change of heart. He rebuked him and said, don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man, this man has done nothing wrong. And I imagine seeing the sign that was above his head that said, Jesus, King of the Jews, he now says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. At noon, we're told that it goes dark, a scary darkness, not like just nighttime, a darkness that is thick, and people begin to wonder what's going on. And in the midst of that, Matthew's gospel, Matthew 27, tells us that Jesus cries out. It's a phrase that's from Psalm 22. I think we have it there. At noon, darkness fell across the whole land until 3 o'clock. About 3 o'clock, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Eli! Eli, lemasabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I wish I could tell you that everything I've described so far, all the physical, all the psychiatric pain that he's going through was the worst. But that would be wrong. The worst pain that he goes through during those six hours is being separated from his father, who he has had a perfect relationship before time even began, and who he's never been separated from. He is separated from his father in order that we might be connected back to God. He is torn apart in order that we might be put back together. And there in that cross, another thing's happened in those last breaths. He says some words, I thirst. I bet his body was on fire. I bet his mouth, his tongue was so thick. But he's also fulfilling Old Testament scripture. When wine vinegar is offered to him, he refuses it. And then he says these amazing words, it is finished. The word is tetelestai, which was often stamped on paid bills. Paid in full. And then, with a loud voice, he cries, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now, I told you how hard it is to talk when you're being crucified. Some believe that with the last energy he had, he says this phrase right as his heart was having a heart attack. His heart was breaking 
in order that ours could be made new. And there on the cross, he dies. Now, Roman, Roman law had it that when a person died of crucifixion and is claimed by family or friends, they must first be pierced to make sure that death is certain. This ruled out that the possibility of a victim feigning being claimed and revived. So a Roman soldier thrust a spear into Jesus' body just up under the rib cage near the breastbone, piercing the pericardial sac of the heart and the heart's right oracle, which is always filled with blood. Blood and water flow out. Two wealthy men named Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus take Jesus' body down from the cross and hurriedly bury Jesus in a new tomb carved out of stone nearby before the Sabbath begins at sundown. A very heavy stone that requires several men to roll it is rolled in front of it, and they leave full of sadness and grief. The one in whom they've put their hope is dead. This is not the way it's supposed to be. It all seems so hard to understand and accept. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. I will tell you that I'm so thankful that's not the end of the story. Very early on Sunday morning, some women came with spices to the tomb to anoint Jesus' body. And they're discussing as they walk, who is going to roll away that heavy stone? When they get to the tomb, to their amazement, the stone has already been rolled away, and there is an angel there in dazzling white clothes that startles them. And he says to them, do not be afraid. Angels always had to say that, by the way. Do not be afraid, for I know you are looking for Jesus who is crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come, see where his body lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And they do see where his body had lay. And they then go quickly to tell his disciples. And they're both terrified but filled with joy at the same time. And they tell the disciples, he has risen from the dead. We've seen and heard an angel tell us and explain it. But the disciples do not believe them because it sounds like nonsense to them. Nevertheless, two of Jesus' disciples get up and run to the tomb. And while they're there, they see the strips of linen that are undisturbed and yet unoccupied. And they see the headcloth that had been on Jesus' head lying in its place, almost like Jesus had time when he left just to fold it up neatly. And there they begin to say, maybe something is going on here. And they did not yet understand from the scriptures that Jesus had to rise from the dead, but they began to believe that in fact, maybe he had. They hear later in the day that Jesus has appeared to some of the women, and then they actually hear that there are two people that were walking on the road to Emmaus, which was a small village seven miles away from Jerusalem. And while they're talking about all the things that had happened that weekend, Jesus comes up and begins to walk with them, but they're kept from recognizing him. And he says, hey, you guys, what are you talking about? And with discouraged looks on their faces, they say to him, are you the only one in Jerusalem that does not know what happened this weekend? And then we pick it up in Luke chapter 24. Look at what Luke says. What things, Jesus asked. He was only the center of it. 
about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? And then they're so excited, they run back to Jerusalem, and they find Jesus' disciples and the others that were with them. And they, before they can even tell what happened, these disciples say to him, it's true, he has risen from the dead, and he's appeared to Peter. And then they begin to say, and he's appeared to us too, and they begin to talk. And while they're talking in this animated way, all of a sudden, Jesus stands among them. And they are startled again. And he says, peace be with you. And then... He begins to talk to them. And we pick it up again as we see in their startled and fright how Jesus speaks to them. He said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the greater story of the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem and even on Easter Sunday 2,000 years later in Springfield, Illinois. Unbelievable. Well, he would appear a number of more times to his disciples. He would appear to his brother, James. What would it take for your brother to believe that you were the son of God? He appeared to over 500 people at the same time. He appeared to a man who was hateful of Jesus named Saul, who became Paul and wrote most of the New Testament. And when he appeared to these people, each time he helped them see the bigger story. He helped them see that God always had a plan to redeem and reverse the curse. He always had a plan to make us part of a people who would reflect him and who would tell other people so they might know the same hope and Peter, for instance, was one of those people. Now, I don't know if you can imagine, but Peter didn't have a lot of hope on Sunday morning. You see, on Thursday night, he had denied knowing Jesus three times, even though he had told Jesus, even if all the other disciples fail you, I'll be with you there through thick and thin. 
and he ended up doing that which he never thought he would do. He failed Jesus. And when you live in failure and shame and then find out that the person that you were sideways with or wrong with has died, it's too late. It was too late. His guilt and shame and grief entombed him until Easter morning. And Jesus met him and said, God's plan is still in play and you're part of that story and I want to forgive you, restore you, and give you a new purpose. I want you to be part of my people and I want you to tell people that don't yet know and who are not yet my people the hope of what I can do in their lives if they will trust me. And that is the story that we celebrate today. But you may be sitting here today and saying, what does that have to do with my story? I've heard these details. They're even impressive. They're inspiring in some ways. But I don't see how my story connects to that story. It was so long ago. It was in a different place, a different time, different language. How does that connect to my story? And friends, I'll just tell you, that's my question when I was a teenager. I had the privilege of being a pastor's kid. I knew a lot of the details of this greater story. I could repeat them backwards and forwards, but I could tell that I didn't know Jesus like some of the people around me knew him. For me, it was a religion, not a relationship. And so one night, I just said, Lord, if you want me to know you, if you really are alive, then you're going to have to open my eyes to understand not only this book, but you're going to have to make yourself known to me because I can't connect that. Only you can help connect me to your story. And that humble prayer about a month later, that's exactly what Jesus did. And over a period of time, he showed me that he wanted me to be part of a people bigger than myself. And he wanted me to share the same message that he had shared with me that other people might have hope. And to this day, I cannot think of a greater purpose for living. And even when I'm most discouraged, even when I feel like quitting sometimes, I still sense that he has that same purpose. You know, these paintings were painted by a lady named Diane. Some of you know Diane Schlehan. We're so grateful for her. But did you know that almost 20 years ago, she recalls that even though she'd gone to church for many years in her life and she was respectful of God and deep down wanted to know God, she realized that it was just a religion for her. It wasn't a relationship. And one day she cried out to Jesus and said, I want to know you. And he made himself known to her in the coming days. And now she wants her whole life to point people to Jesus with her art. As I look at this particular painting of Jesus, I just sense the personableness of it, that Jesus really cared about me too and not just everyone else. And as you look at this picture, one of the things we talked about before she started painting was what I call the wonder of with. The wonder of with. She's got all kinds of people coming out of the tomb with Jesus. Now let me try and make sense of that. Ephesians 2 says this. Here's how it describes it. It says that, remember, at that time, you were separate from Christ, without hope and without God in the world. That's how I felt at 15 years old. I knew I was separate from Christ, and because I was separate from Christ, I was separate from hope. I was without hope and without God in the world. And maybe that describes you today. But did you know that when Jesus died, he did it so that you could die with him? and rise with him. Here's what Romans 6 says. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. And then there's these words. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with 
him. Jesus says, because I live, you too will live. And so we see the joy of these people coming out of the tomb. Now, I would love to tell you lots more stories, but let me just tell you a couple. This weekend, I received a book in the mail by a dear friend, and it was a book by a guy named Tyler Trent. If you're involved in sports, following sports at all, you may have known that one of the most exciting, meaningful stories in the last year was about a 20-year-old kid named Tyler Trent who went to Purdue University. Tyler, at 15, was given the terrible diagnosis of osteosarcoma, a rare bone disease. And when he got that news, it ripped his world wide open. He had lots of questions. His whole goal eventually was to recover through two different difficult diagnoses, the last one being terminal. And his whole goal was to get to his freshman year at Purdue University, which he did. And he became a huge fan, a super fan. Well, this last fall, he predicted that even though Ohio State University was ranked second in the football world of our country, that Purdue was unranked, would defeat them when they met. For a game. And he got all of the Purdue fans to believe it, even the players. And in fact, they won 49 to 20. That's the reason why his book is entitled The Upset, because it was an upset. But he goes on in this book to say that that was one upset, but that's nothing compared to the ultimate upset. And last night, I found myself having a hard time putting the book down. And I just want to read one thing to you. It's worth reading. But why is God, he says, waiting so long to finish his big story? That's a fair question. It's easy to feel that he must not care about our suffering, or else he would not leave us to face it for even another minute. God himself chose to become a man so he could know what it feels like to be us. He didn't stay far away, but instead chose to come and suffer with us, which is why one of his names, Emmanuel, means God with us. He experienced every bit of pain we experience, but in higher doses. He didn't have to do this, but he chose to, so he can empathize with our sufferings and weaknesses, having known them for himself. He may be waiting to finish the story, but he has not left us alone or without hope. He goes on to show that if you are with Christ by faith, then you will also be with him and you will know his resurrection power now and forever. I love C.S. Lewis' Chronicles of Narnia. I actually mentioned it earlier in the series, but I don't know if you've ever read the closing sentences of the Chronicles of Narnia, but I love them. It says, but for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. When you know Christ, that means that whatever is going on in your life right now, it's not the end, it's not the whole story. There's more to the story, and there's more to this life, and therefore, you and I can live into that with a hope, not only in the future, but in a person. Do you have that kind of relationship? If you don't, you can today. That's why Jesus came. Winston Churchill planned his funeral, the former prime minister of England, and uh, he had it arranged where two buglers would be placed in the balcony up high of St. Paul's Cathedral there in London when his service was held. At the end of the service, he had the first bugler play 
taps. Have you ever heard it? Listen. Everyone in the military knew that meant it's the end of the day. But what no one expected next is what he had planned next. He had the other Beagler quickly play Reveille. Have you ever heard that? be a new beginning when you're with Christ and he came to do life with us. We're made by God for God to do all of life with God. Well, as we close, we're going to sing in just a moment, but before we sing, I just want to tell you a quick story. There was in Russia, some of you know that there was communism rule for over 70 years, began in 1917 till 1989. In 1930, after they had made every effort to eliminate Christianity and bring atheism as the national religion. One of the communist leaders traveled from Moscow to Kiev to a huge assembly. And he began for an hour to talk about the merits of atheism. And he railed against Christianity and built a case for why it was foolish to believe in Christ and Christianity. When he finished, you can imagine the room was heavy. And then he said, are there any questions? No one spoke. A few moments later, a simple man stood up in the crowd. He looked to his left and he looked to his right. And then in a loud voice, he shouted, Christ has risen! And everyone stood to their feet and said, Christ has risen indeed. If Easter is true, friends, we have a reason to sing as his people. Let's stand and praise him. Thanks for joining us today. If you would like more information or to stay connected to Cherry Hills Church, please visit our website at cherryhillsfamily.org or follow us on Facebook.